Section four, that is, Book One, Chapter Five of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book One, Chapter Five Aztec Agriculture, The Mechanical Arts, Merchants, Domestic Manners. Agriculture in Mexico was in the same advanced state as the other arts of social life. In few countries, indeed, has it been more respected. It was closely interwoven with the civil and religious institutions of the nation. There were peculiar deities to preside over it. The names of the months and of the religious festivals had more or less reference to it. The public taxes, as we have seen, were often paid in agricultural produce. All, except the soldiers and great nobles, even the inhabitants of the cities, cultivated the soil. The work was chiefly done by the men, the women scattering the seed, husking the corn, and taking part only in the lighter labours of the field. There was no want of judgment in the management of their ground. When somewhat exhausted, it was permitted to recover by lying fallow. Its extreme dryness was relieved by canals, with which the land was partially irrigated, and the same end was promoted by severe penalties against the destruction of the woods, with which the country, as already noticed, was well covered before the conquest. Lastly, they provided for their harvests ample granaries, which were admitted by the conquerors to be of admirable construction. In this provision we see the forecast of civilized man. Amongst the most important articles of husbandry, we may notice the banana, whose facility of cultivation and exuberant returns are so fatal to habits of systematic and hardy industry. Another celebrated plant was the cacao, the fruit of which furnished the chocolate from the Mexican chocolatl, now so common a beverage throughout Europe. The vanilla, confined to a small district of the sea-coast, was used for the same purposes, of flavouring their food and drink, as with us. The great staple of the country, as indeed of the American continent, was maize, or Indian corn, which grew freely along the valleys and up the steep sides of the cordilleras to the high level of the tableland. The Aztecs were as curious in its preparation, and as well instructed in its manifold uses, as the most expert New England housewife. Its gigantic stalks in these equinoctial regions afford a saccharine matter, not found to the same extent in northern latitudes, and supplied the natives with sugar little inferior to that of the cane itself, which was not introduced among them till after the conquest. But the miracle of nature was the great Mexican aloe, or maguey, whose clustering pyramid of flowers, towering above their dark coronals of leaves, were seen sprinkled over many a broad acre of the tableland. As we have already noticed, its bruised leaves afforded a paste, from which paper was manufactured. Its juice was fermented into an intoxicating beverage, pulque, of which the natives to this day are excessively fond. 
its leaves further supplied an impenetrable thatch for the more humble dwellings thread of which coarse stuffs were made and strong cords were drawn from its tough and twisted fibres pins and needles were made of the thorns at the extremity of its leaves and the root when properly cooked was converted into a palatable and nutritious food the agave in short was meat drink clothing and writing materials for the aztec surely never did nature enclose in so compact a form so many of the elements of human comfort and civilization it would be obviously out of place to enumerate in these pages all the varieties of plants, many of them of medicinal virtue, which have been introduced from Mexico into Europe. Still less can I attempt a catalogue of its flowers, which, with their variegated and gaudy colours, form the greatest attraction of our greenhouses. The opposite climates embraced within the narrow latitudes of New Spain have given to it probably the richest and most diversified flora to be found in any country on the globe. These different products were systematically arranged by the Aztecs, who understood their properties, and collected them into nurseries more extensive than any then existing in the old world. It is not improbable that they suggested the idea of those gardens of plants, which were introduced into Europe not many years after the conquest. The Mexicans were as well acquainted with the mineral as with the vegetable treasures of their kingdom. Silver, lead and tin they drew from the mines of Tasco, copper from the mountains of Sacotolan. These were taken not only from the crude masses on the surface, but from veins wrought in the solid rock into which they opened extensive galleries. In fact, the traces of their labours furnished the best indications for the early Spanish miners. Gold, found on the surface, or gleaned from the beds of rivers, was cast into bars, or in the form of dust, made part of the regular tribute of the southern provinces of the empire. The use of iron, with which the soil was impregnated, was unknown to them. Notwithstanding its abundance, it demands so many processes to prepare it for use that it has commonly been one of the last metals pressed into the service of man. The age of iron has followed that of brass, in fact, as well as in fiction. They found a substitute in an alloy of tin and copper, and with tools made of this bronze could cut not only metals, but with the aid of a siliceous dust, the hardest substances as basalt, porphyry, amethysts, and emeralds. They fashioned these last, which were found very large, into many curious and fantastic forms. They cast also vessels of gold and silver, carving them with their metallic chisels in a very delicate manner. Some of the silver vases were so large that a man could not encircle them with his arms. They imitated very nicely the figures of animals, and, what was extraordinary, could mix the metals in such a manner that the feathers of a bird or the scales of a fish should be alternately of gold and silver. The Spanish goldsmiths admitted their superiority over themselves in these ingenious works. They employed another tool made of itztli or obsidian, a dark transparent mineral, exceedingly hard, found in abundance in their hills. They made it into knives, razors, and their serrated swords. It took a keen edge, though soon blunted. 
With this they wrought the various stones and alabasters employed in the construction of their public works and principal dwellings. I shall defer a more particular account of these to the body of the narrative, and will only add here that the entrances and angles of the buildings were profusely ornamented with images, sometimes of their fantastic deities and frequently of animals. The latter were executed with great accuracy. The former, according to Tolkemada, were the hideous reflection of their own souls, and it was not till after they had been converted to Christianity that they could model the true figure of a man. The old chronicler's facts are well founded, whatever we may think of his reasons. The allegorical phantasms of his religion, no doubt, gave a direction to the Aztec artist in his delineation of the human figure, supplying him with an imaginary beauty in the personification of divinity itself. As these superstitions lost their hold on his mind, it opened to the influences of a purer taste, and after the conquest the Mexicans furnished many examples of correct and some of beautiful portraiture. Sculptured images were so numerous that the foundations of the cathedral in the Plaza Mayor, the great square of Mexico, are said to be entirely composed of them. This spot may indeed be regarded as the Aztec Forum, the great depository of the treasures of ancient sculpture, which now are hid in its bosom. Such monuments are spread all over the capital, however, and a new cellar can hardly be dug or foundation laid without turning up some of the mouldering relics of barbaric art. But they are little heeded, and if not wantonly broken in pieces at once, are usually worked into the rising wall, or supports of the new edifice. Two celebrated bar-reliefs of the last Montezuma and his father, cut in the solid rock in the beautiful groves of Chapultepec, were deliberately destroyed as late as the last century by order of the government. The monuments of the barbarian meet with as little respect from civilized man as those of the civilized man from the barbarian. The most remarkable piece of sculpture yet disinterred is the great calendar stone noticed in the preceding chapter. It consists of dark porphyry, and in its original dimensions, as taken from the quarry, is computed to have weighed nearly fifty tons. It was transported from the mountains beyond Lake Charco, a distance of many leagues, over a broken country intersected by watercourses and canals. In crossing a bridge which traversed one of these latter in the capital, the supports gave way, and the huge mass was precipitated into the water, whence it was with difficulty recovered. The fact that so enormous a fragment of porphyry could be thus safely carried for leagues, in the face of such obstacles and without the aid of cattle, for the Aztecs had no animals of draught, suggests to us no mean ideas of their mechanical skill, and of their machinery, and implies a degree of cultivation little inferior to that demanded for the geometrical and astronomical science displayed in the inscriptions on this very stone. The ancient Mexicans made utensils of earthenware for the ordinary purposes of domestic life, numerous specimens of which still exist. They made cups and vases of a lacquered or painted wood, impervious to wet and gaudily coloured. Their dyes were obtained from both mineral and vegetable substances. Among them was the rich crimson of the cochineal, the modern rival of the famed Tyrian purple. 
it was introduced into Europe from Mexico, where the curious little insect was nourished with great care on plantations of cactus, since fallen into neglect. The natives were thus enabled to give a brilliant colouring to the webs, which were manufactured of every degree of fineness from the cotton raised in abundance throughout the warmer regions of the country. They had the art also of interweaving with these the delicate hair of rabbits and other animals, which made a cloth of great warmth as well as beauty, of a kind altogether original, and on this they often laid a rich embroidery of birds, flowers, or some other fanciful device. But the art in which they most delighted was their plumaje, or feather-work. With this they could produce all the effects of a beautiful mosaic. The gorgeous plumage of the tropical birds, especially of the parrot tribe, afforded every variety of colour, and the fine down of the humming-bird, which revelled in swarms among the honeysuckle bowers of Mexico, supplied them with soft aerial tints that gave an exquisite finish to the picture. The feathers, pasted on a fine cotton web, were wrought into dresses for the wealthy, hangings for apartments, and ornaments for the temples. No one of the American fabrics excited such admiration in Europe, whither numerous specimens were sent by the conquerors. It is to be regretted that so graceful an art should have been suffered to fall into decay. There were no shops in Mexico, but the various manufactures and agricultural products were brought together for sale in the great market-places of the principal cities. Fairs were held there every fifth day, and were thronged by a numerous concourse of persons, who came to buy or sell from all the neighbouring country. A particular quarter was allotted to each kind of article. The numerous transactions were conducted without confusion, and with entire regard to justice, under the inspection of magistrates appointed for the purpose. The traffic was carried on partly by barter, and partly by means of a regulated currency, of different values. This consisted of transparent quills of gold dust, of bits of tin cut in the form of a tea, and of bags of cacao, containing a specified number of grains. "'Blessed money!' exclaims Peter Martyr, which exempts its possessors from avarice, since it cannot be long hoarded, nor hidden underground. There did not exist in Mexico that distinction of castes found among the Egyptian and Asiatic nations. It was usual, however, for the son to follow the occupation of his father. The different trades were arranged into something like guilds, having each a particular district of the city appropriated to it, with its own chief, its own tutelar deity, its peculiar festivals, and the like. Trade was held in avowed estimation by the Aztecs. Apply thyself, my son, was the advice of an aged chief, to agriculture, or to feather-work, or to some other honourable calling. Thus did your ancestors before you. Else how would they have provided for themselves and their families? Never was it heard that nobility alone was able to maintain its possessor. Shrewd maxims, that must have sounded somewhat strange in the ear of a Spanish Hidalgo. But the occupation peculiarly respected was that of the merchant. It formed so important and singular a feature of their social economy as to merit a much more particular notice than it has received from historians. The Aztec merchant was a sort of itinerant trader who made his journeys to the remotest borders of, of Anahuac and to the countries beyond, 
carrying with him merchandise of rich stuffs, jewellery, slaves, and other valuable commodities. The slaves were obtained at the great market of Azcapotzalco, not many leagues from the capital, where fairs were regularly held for the sale of these unfortunate beings. They were brought thither by their masters, dressed in their gayest apparel, and instructed to sing, dance, and display their little stock of personal accomplishments, so as to recommend themselves to the purchaser. Slave-dealing was an honourable calling among the Aztecs. With this rich freight the merchant visited the different provinces, always bearing some present of value from his own sovereign to their chiefs, and usually receiving others in return, with a permission to trade. Should this be denied him, or should he meet with indignity or violence, he had the means of resistance in his power. He performed his journeys with a number of companions of his own rank, and a large body of inferior attendants, who were employed to transport the goods. Fifty or sixty pounds were the usual load for a man. The whole caravan went armed, and so well provided against sudden hostilities, that they could make good their defence if necessary, till reinforced from home. In one instance a body of these militant traders stood a siege of four years in the town of Ayotlan, which they finally took from the enemy. Their own government, however, was always prompt to embark in a war on this ground, finding it a very convenient pretext for extending the Mexican Empire. It was not unusual to allow the merchants to raise levies themselves, which were placed under their command. It was, moreover, very common for the prince to employ the merchants as a sort of spy, to furnish him information of the state of the countries through which they passed, and the dispositions of the inhabitants towards himself. Thus their sphere of action was much enlarged beyond that of a humble trader, and they acquired a high consideration in the body politic. They were allowed to assume insignia and devices of their own. Some of their number composed what is called by the Spanish writers a council of finance, at least this was the case in Tezcuco. They were much consulted by the monarch, who had some of them constantly near his person, addressing them by the title of uncle, which may remind one of that of primo or cousin, by which a grandee of Spain is saluted by his sovereign. They were allowed to have their own courts, in which civil and criminal cases, not excepting capital, were determined, so that they formed an independent community, as it were, of themselves. And as their various traffic supplied them with abundant stores of wealth, they enjoyed many of the most essential advantages of a hereditary aristocracy. That trade should prove the path to eminent political preferment in a nation but partially civilised, where the names of soldier and priest are usually the only titles to respect, is certainly an anomaly in history. It forms some contrast to the standard of the more polished monarchies of the old world, in which rank is supposed to be less dishonoured by a life of idle ease or frivolous pleasure than by those active pursuits which promote equally the prosperity of the state and of the individual. If civilization corrects many prejudices, it must be allowed that it creates others. We shall be able to form a better idea of the actual refinement of the natives by penetrating into their domestic life and observing the intercourse between the sexes. We have, fortunately, the means of doing this. We shall there find the ferocious Aztec frequently displaying all the sensibility of a cultivated nature, consoling his friends under affliction, 
or congratulating them on their good fortune, as on an occasion of marriage, or of the birth or the baptism of a child, when he was punctilious in his visits, bringing presents of costly dresses and ornaments, or the more simple offering of flowers, equally indicative of his sympathy. The visits at these times, though regulated with all the precision of oriental courtesy, were accompanied by expressions of the most cordial and affectionate regard. The discipline of children, especially at the public schools, as stated in a previous chapter, was exceedingly severe, but after she had come to a mature age, the Aztec maiden was treated by her parents with a tenderness from which all reserve seemed banished. In the counsels to a daughter about to enter into life, they conjured her to preserve simplicity in her manners and conversation, uniform neatness in her attire, with strict attention to personal cleanliness. They inculcated modesty as the great ornament of a woman, an implicit reverence for her husband, softening their admonitions by such endearing epithets as showed the fullness of a parent's love. Polygamy was permitted among the Mexicans, though chiefly confined, probably, to the wealthiest classes, and the obligations of the marriage vow, which was made with all the formality of a religious ceremony, were fully recognised and impressed on both parties. The women are described by the Spaniards as pretty, unlike their unfortunate descendants of the present day, though with the same serious and rather melancholy cast of countenance. Their long black hair, covered in some parts of the country by a veil made of the fine web of the pita, might generally be seen wreathed with flowers, or among the richer people with strings of precious stones and pearls from the Gulf of California. They appear to have been treated with much consideration by their husbands, and passed their time in indolent tranquillity, or in such feminine occupations as spinning, embroidery, and the like, while their maidens beguiled the hours by the rehearsal of traditionary tales and ballads. The women partook equally with the men of social festivities and entertainments. These were often conducted on a large scale, both as regards the number of guests and the costliness of the preparations. Numerous attendants of both sexes waited at the banquet. The halls were scented with perfumes, and the courts strewed with odoriferous herb and flowers, which were distributed in profusion among the guests as they arrived. Cotton napkins and ewers of water were placed before them, as they took their seats at the board, for the venerable ceremony of ablution, before and after eating, was punctiliously observed by the Aztecs. Tobacco was then offered to the company, in pipes, mixed up with aromatic substances, or in the form of cigars, inserted in tubes of tortoiseshell or silver. They compressed the nostrils with the fingers, while they inhaled the smoke which they frequently swallowed. Whether the women who sat apart from the men at table were allowed the indulgence of the fragrant weed, as in the most polished circles of modern Mexico, is not told us. It is a curious fact that the Aztecs also took the dried leaf in the pulverized form of snuff. The table was well provided with substantial meats, especially game, among which the most conspicuous was the turkey, erroneously supposed, as its name imports, to have come originally from the east. These more solid dishes were flanked by others of vegetables and fruits, of every delicious variety found on the North American continent. 
the different viands were prepared in various ways, with delicate sauces and seasoning, of which the Mexicans were very fond. Their palate was still further regaled by confections and pastry, for which their maize flour and sugar supplied ample materials. One other dish, of a disgusting nature, was sometimes added to the feast, especially when the celebration partook of a religious character. On such occasions a slave was sacrificed, and his flesh, elaborately dressed, formed one of the chief ornaments of the banquet. Cannibalism, in the guise of an Epicurean science, becomes even the more revolting. The meats were kept warm by chafing dishes. The table was ornamented with vases of silver and sometimes gold, of delicate workmanship. The drinking cups and spoons were of the same costly materials, and likewise of tortoiseshell. The favourite beverage was the chocolatl, flavoured with vanilla and different spices. They had a way of preparing the froth of it, so as to make it almost solid enough to be eaten, and took it cold. The fermented juice of the margay, with a mixture of sweets and acids, supplied also various agreeable drinks of different degrees of strength, and formed the chief beverage of the elder part of the company. As soon as they had finished with their repast, the young people rose from the table to close the festivities of the day with dancing. They danced gracefully to the sound of various instruments, accompanying their movements with chants of a pleasing, though somewhat plaintive, character. The older guests continued at table, sipping pulque and gossiping about other times, till the virtues of the exhilarating beverage put them in good humour with their own. Intoxication was not rare in this part of the company, and, what is singular, was excused in them, though severely punished in the younger. The Aztec character was perfectly original and unique. It was made up of incongruities apparently irreconcilable. It blended into one the marked peculiarities of different nations, not only of the same place of civilization, but as far removed from each other as the extremes of barbarism and refinement. It may find a fitting parallel in their own wonderful climate, capable of producing, on a few square leagues of surface, the boundless variety of vegetable forms which belong to the frozen regions of the north, the temperate zone of Europe, and the burning skies of Arabia and Hindustan. End of Book One, Chapter Five